Well, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Connect and Grow Ministries. Actually, it's Grow and Connect Ministries. See, I don't know my own title half the time uh, here at Fellowship Bible Church. And it's my privilege to bring the message to you today. As Todd mentioned, we are beginning the Advent season today. So uh, today's message, as well as the next three, will all be related to themes of Advent. And uh, our overall theme for this sermon series is simple and to the point. Jesus Christ is born. What a wonderful truth that is. So we hope to uh, really concentrate on that, remember it, celebrate it, and draw strength and hope from that fact. This morning, the theme, as uh, you heard as the candle was lit, is hope. So we're going to be talking about hope today, fulfilled hope and new hope. And uh, for those of you some of you over here that were at the uh, FBC Youth Fall Retreat, this uh, opening story will sound familiar, but don't give away the ending to anybody, okay? So in 1914, a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton led an expedition attempting to make the first land crossing, well, it have to be land, wouldn't it? The first crossing of the continent of Antarctica. Both the South Pole, <clears throat> excuse me, both the South Pole and the North Pole had been uh, discovered by this point, and so he felt like this was the only challenge waiting to, uh, to be conquered, so uh, he decided he, he would lead a crew of men to walk across the entire continent. Well, the ship that he was on was called the Endurance, and as they were sailing along the coast of Antarctica, headed toward the point where they would begin their trek, the ice pack kept getting thicker and thicker, and eventually it actually brought their ship to a complete standstill. They were just locked in with all this thick ice around them, and they eventually even had to abandon the ship because it was going nowhere. In fact, the ice, the movement of all that ice eventually crushed the ship. So what they did was for three months after abandoning the ship, they lived on this massive sheet of ice that was just floating on the ocean and drifting along with the current. <clears throat> because they had no, nowhere else to go, of course. <clears throat> Pardon me. They had nowhere else to go. Well, over time, this, over these three months, this ice flow, it is, as it's called, drifted eventually near to some solid land, a little island called Elephant Island. So they made their way off the ice and onto solid land. But that didn't solve their problem because Elephant Island was, for one thing, completely uninhabited, and for another thing, very rarely visited by ships, so they really could have no hope of rescue there. Their only hope was to try to get to the nearest inhabited island, which was 800 miles from Elephant Island. So Shackleton took a small part of his crew, and they got in one of the lifeboats they had taken from the ship and headed off into the open sea on this 800-mile journey. <clears throat> the journey actually took them 14 days. And remember, because this is a lifeboat, that means there's no covering on top. So they were subjected to gale force winds, enormous waves, and the constant freezing spray of the ocean falling on them. They probably got little to no sleep over the, those 14 days. But think about this. What is it that kept Shackleton and this little crew going? I mean, things were miserable back at Elephant Island, but they weren't this miserable so what kept them from going, let's just turn back. Let's just turn back and go, go sit with the rest of the crew. Well, what kept them going was hope. Hope that at the end of this very difficult and painful journey, 
There was deliverance, there was rescue, there was help waiting for them. So they persevered 14 days. They finally made it to this little island, South Georgia Island. But there was one more hurdle to be crossed. Because where they landed was the southern end of the island, and the settlement was on the other end, the north end, probably the warmer side of the island. Now, they had just finished this 14-day journey, little or no sleep, undoubtedly uncomfortable, possibly sick, and certainly fatigued absolutely to the bone. What was able to drive them forward then to continue one more hurdle to go across the mountains on the interior of this island and get to the settlement? Well, once again, it was hope. Hope that at the end of this journey, one more thing that they had to get through, at the end of it, there would finally be deliverance and rescue and help. So they strengthened their resolve and headed out, and they marched 36 hours continuously over the mountains in this island, and they made it. They made it to the settlement. They found help. Shackleton was eventually able to round up some men and a ship to go back to the rest of his crew on Elephant Island, and amazingly, not one man in his whole crew was lost. So it did have a happy ending. But what I love about that story is it's a very strong example of the power of hope. Hope is what kept these men driving forward when it would be natural just to say, I'm just going to lay down here and die. I'm just, I'm just going to stop. I can't go on. But they had the hope that there was something waiting for them if they persevered and pushed through. So let's think a bit about hope. And I want to start with a two-part question. What is hope and why do we need it? What is hope? What do we, when we say hope in our everyday language, what, is, what do we mean by that? Well, <clears throat> that's a good question. <laughs> Somewhere here in my notes. Think about how we use that word. Uh, I hope I can get a good grade on my English test. I hope it snows this winter. I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas. I hope I can figure out why my car won't start. One thing that all of those have in common is that hope always has a future component. It's always something that we're looking forward to. And then hope also has this component of desire. It's something that you want, something that you want to happen, that you want to possess. Merriam-Webster defines hope as a desire accompanied by expectation of fulfillment. Now, sometimes our hopes are not based on anything reliable. For instance, hoping that it will snow this winter, that is based on East Texas winter weather patterns. Highly unreliable, as we all know, that have lived here for any period of time. On the other hand, sometimes we put our hopes on something that is very reliable. Uh, A young boy or girl hoping that their grandmother will get them a gift for Christmas. Very reliable. Grandmothers are wonderful at giving gifts for Christmas and any other time of the year. Uh, you guys have probably seen the uh, meme that made its way around years ago with the little kid who was, uh, had a smile on his face and a victorious look and said, saw it, wanted it, asked grandmom for it, got it. <laughs> so that's how it goes, as you know. So hope has this idea of desire. It has this idea of expectation. It has this idea of looking forward to the future. Now, the way that Merriam defined it is, is not Merriam-Webster defined. It's not always the way we use it because sometimes we use the word hope when really we mean the word wish. For instance, hoping for snow this winter. Okay, We really don't have anything to base it on except that it has snowed at some point in winters past. But there isn't anything reliable. We're just wishing that it will happen. But most of the time when we say hope, we're saying, 
I'm looking forward to something, and I have a reasonable expectation for it to happen. That's the uh, everyday use of the word hope. You're trusting, uh, excuse me, but how does the Bible use the word hope? Let's look at that for just a minute. Eerdman's Bible Dictionary defines hope as confident expectation. Confident expectation. So just like the, word, the examples that I gave you a minute ago, again, there's this idea of looking forward to something and you have a desire for something. Now, when I started this study, I thought that there would be this very clear difference between the way we use hope and the way the Bible uses hope. But I was wrong about that. Actually, the Bible uses the ho word hope uh, in much the same way that we use the word hope. But I do want you to notice that word confident in this definition. There is a confidence associated with hope used in the Bible because you're trusting in someone or something to fulfill this hope. Now, again, it may be unreliable. It may be a foolish hope, or it may be something that's solid and is therefore a hope that is worthy of the name. The Bible actually uh, often differentiates between things we should hope in and things we shouldn't hope in. So the Bible gives us lots of examples of here's false hope and here's true hope. Eerdmans adds that hope ranges in degree from an ordinary desire felt with eager expectation to a defining characteristic of those who seek God and experience His grace. It's foolish to put your hope in someone or something unreliable, but we do it all the time, and that's why the Bible regularly warns us against that. For instance, Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. There God is warning the people not to trust in military might because ultimately that is not their hope. Every military is going to be defeated sooner or later. Every military will fail you regardless of how many chariots or horses or in our case, tanks and helicopters that you have. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? That's someone who hopes in their own intelligence and wisdom. And then it adds this. There is more hope for a fool than for him. It's foolish to put your hope in a human army. It's foolish to hope, put your hope in human wisdom. Instead of putting our hope in these unreliable and temporary things, our hope should be in God himself. Only God is worthy of hope. Psalm 43, 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. That's the encouragement of Scripture. And today what I want to help you do is to focus on the hope of those, as Eerdmans put it, who seek God and experience His grace. I want to talk about hope that is founded on, that's built upon, that's rooted upon the character and promises of God, something that is sure, unreliable, and unshakable. So in the context of this message, when I say the word hope, I want you to think of it as confident expectation based on God's promises. Hopefully, that answered the first part of the question, uh, but let's look at this second one. Why do we need hope? Why is hope a necessary component in our life. Well, in Isaiah's day, the people of God needed hope because they were facing terror. They were facing oppression. They were facing defeat. Since hope involves looking forward, it guards us against being stuck in the present. It helps us fight the discouragement or despair that comes from feeling that this is all there is, especially when you're in a bad time. 
And doesn't it seem like we have been under special rules and protocols for COVID for decades? It started in March, but it feels so long and unending. <clears throat> we need hope to draw our minds away from the dreary present and into the future. We need hope because our needs and our dreams and our desires are not yet fulfilled. We long for freedom from pain. We long for freedom from sin. We long for freedom from fear, freedom from lack. We need hope because we live in trouble and pain. We need hope because it gives us motivation and comfort and purpose, as it did for Shackleton and his crew. When life is going along just fine, you need hope from God to know that this life isn't all there is. There is a life after this life that is infinitely greater. When life is crashing to the ground, you need God's hope to be comforted and strengthened to persevere. Everyone needs hope. It's part of what helps us to move forward in life. So let's get back to Isaiah 9. The people of God needed hope, and God gave hope through the promise of the Messiah. Now Isaiah lived during the time of what we call the divided kingdom. The nation of Israel, which at one time was all one nation, had divided during the days of Solomon. And the northern kingdom was still known as Israel. Its capital was the city of Samaria. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. And Judah was the uh, kingdom where uh, Isaiah lived and ministered. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah prophesied that Assyria, which was the dominant world power at that time, was going to conquer Israel, which may have made Judah feel kind of glad because they were rivals and often enemies, but Assyria would also conquer Judah. Now, knowing that a foreign army is going to conquer your land is a terrifying enough thought, but the Assyrians were infamous for their cruelty and their merciless treatment of those they conquered. So you can only imagine the, the terror and the fear and the, is disturbation a word? The state of being disturbed, whatever that word is, that the Israelites were feeling upon hearing this prophecy that the evil and merciless Assyrians were going to conquer them. The people of God needed hope as they tried to process the awful prophecy of judgment that would soon fall on their land. And God gave them hope. He gave them the hope of the Messiah. With the threat of darkness, fear, and defeat hanging over them, the Lord comforted them with these words. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now Isaiah is not denying that there is going to be gloom when they experience the oppression and the defeat coming from the hand of Syria. But he's looking to the future and basically saying there is going to come a day when that gloom will be despaired, dispelled. There is going to come a day when light is going to shine on the darkness. Now I mentioned Zebulun and Naphtali. Those two tribes, their lands were on the northern part of Israel. So probably they would have been the first tribes that would have experienced this Assyrian oppression. Possibly why he pointed toward them. However, as you know from Matthew chapter 4, 
This prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus of Nazareth began a wide-ranging ministry in this area because he, being the light of the world, did shine light in this dark area. God promises that he will shine his light in those places that are dark with despair and destruction and spiritual wickedness. So one piece of hope that they can cling to is that God's light is going to shine again on their land. Even though it feels like God is abandoning them to the ravages of the Assyrian army right now, even though it feels like God is pushing them away, God is promising that one day he is going to shine light and dispel all of that darkness. Then Isaiah prophesies an outbreak of joy and peace. Look at verses 3 to 5. The you he's referring to is God. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." God promises to increase the nation, to increase their size, and to give them joy, the kind of joy they feel when there's a wonderful ripe harvest that they're gathering in, the kind of joy they feel when they have had a tremendous military victory. This joy will come from being set free from oppression. Yes, the Assyrians are going to conquer you. They are going to have you under bondage and oppression for now, but there is coming a day when I will break that oppression and you will be free once again. And do you see how supernatural the hope that God is offering is? Because who but God could complete a freedom and a peace so complete that he could say, you know what, all of your battle garments, all of the boots you use in battle, you can just burn those. There's no need for any of that anymore because this peace that I'm going to establish will be perfect and forever. We've hit the high point of the prophecy, this word of hope from the living God. And now we're about to be told how this remarkable thing will come to pass. How, O oh God, will you dispel gloom? How will you bring light? How will you multiply the nation? How will you increase its joy? How will you break the rod of the oppressor from off our backs? Look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God saying, I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to send light. I'm going to give you joy. I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to destroy those who are oppressing you by sending you a person, a man, a child, a son. I'm going to send you the Messiah, and he is going to accomplish this. He will be given the government. He will sit on the throne of David. The Messiah, as you know, was the centerpiece of the hope of the Old Testament. Through, from, from Genesis to Malachi, the Messiah is looked forward to through many prophecies. God sending his prophets to remind them Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Things may look dark now. It may look hopeless. It may look like we will never recover. But Messiah is going to come and set everything right. Isaiah gives four names to describe the greatness 
of this Messiah. So let's look at those briefly. The first name is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The Messiah would not just be a counselor, but a wonderful, an exceptional, a distinguished counselor. Now, a counselor back in those days, as today, is someone who gives advice and guidance. Uh, kings would often have a group of counselors around them to give them advice, for instance, when they were waging battle to know what strategy they might need to use. But rather than needing a group of counselors, Isaiah, Isaiah says that the Messiah will be a wonderful counselor. He'll be able to guide the nation in God's perfect wisdom. He'll be an ideal ruler, able to solve any problems. <clears throat> the second name that he's given is Mighty God. Now, the original audience of Isaiah's letter would not have assumed, as we are able to looking back from the New Testament era, they would not have assumed that this meant that the Messiah was divine. They simply didn't have the Trinitarian category of thought that we have, so they wouldn't have been able to conceive of plurality within the Godhead as was revealed in the New Testament. They would have taken this name, Mighty God, to mean that uh, God is acting on behalf of this king, this king is doing all of God's bidding, and that this king is therefore a, a perfect representative of God as his chosen one. Now again, you and I have the benefit of the full revelation of the New Testament. We know that Jesus did indeed reveal himself to be divine. So we can see here that God was giving the nation a clue that this Messiah would be more than a man, more than somebody just ordinary. The Messiah is also called Everlasting Father. Now kings in that day were regarded as fathers to their people because they protected them and they provided for them. And since the Messiah would be an everlasting father, God is once again giving a clue that this man is more than just a man because he would not just be a father to his people, but an everlasting father. So pointing to a reign that will never end, which of course was not true of any ordinary man, only true of Jesus of Nazareth. This phrase could also be translated as father of eternity, which would mean the source or originator of eternity. And if that was what Isaiah was meaning to communicate, of course, it would also point to the divinity of the Messiah because who begins eternity other than God himself? The last name that he mentions is Prince of Peace. This royal leader would bring peace to the nation. And as you have heard our lead pastor Todd Malone mention many times, peace in biblical thought is not simply absence of conflict. He's not saying he will just bring an end to the wars around you, but peace points towards complete wholeness, total security, uh, total fulfillment, welfare <clears throat> that is completely provided for. God gave hope through the promise of Messiah, and the people of God waited in hope for this Prince of Peace, this one who would bring wholeness and rest and security to their land. Centuries passed, as you know, as the Jews experienced their ups and downs. This Isaiah prophecy was given more than 700 years before Jesus came. Rulers came and went, and none of them, of course, fulfilled the prophecies that were given here. They knew that the Messiah would come. They held on to the hope for the Messiah. It's what gave them motivation, what gave them strength to persevere through the dark times that they experienced. They waited, they prayed, they hoped. And then, after 700 years of waiting, after this prophecy, Jesus fulfilled the hope for a Messiah. Finally, hope was fulfilled. The Messiah had come. 
As you know, of course, the Jews of that day, like the Jews of our day, largely rejected Jesus as Messiah. He wasn't exactly what they pictured, and so they rejected what God had given to them. But nonetheless, Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills this hope. The Bible said that a child would be born and a son would be given. Every person, of course, is a child that is born. But what's special about this phrase, a son will be given. Well, that phrase points to the fact that this will be a descendant of David, therefore a true son in his kingly line who would be given David's throne. Jesus' mother Mary was a direct descendant of David, and Jesus' legal father Joseph, not his biological father, but his legal father, was also a direct descendant of David. So Jesus was the rightful heir to David's throne by birth, and he was given to Israel and the world by the Father. As it says so beautifully in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God gave his Son as a gift. Verse 6 says, The government shall be upon his shoulder. And Luke 1, the angel Gabriel told Mary that her son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So by birth and by divine appointment and by angelic announcement, Jesus Christ was the rightful heir to the throne of David. He was the rightful king of Israel. After his resurrection from the dead, and just before he ascended back to heaven, he called his disciples together and said in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not only the government of Israel, but the rule of the entire world, the entire universe, and even heaven itself was handed over to Jesus. So when Isaiah 6 said the government will be upon his shoulder, it was not just the government of Israel, but the government of all that there is. <clears throat> and that was indeed given to Jesus of Nazareth. Now how about those names that Isaiah gave? Do those describe Jesus? Does Jesus fulfill these four names that describe the Messiah? It says he would be called Wonderful Counselor. Mark 1.22 says that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. In John 7, there were some officers that were sent to arrest Jesus, and when they went to arrest him at the temple, he was teaching the people, and they couldn't arrest him. So they reported to their superiors, no man ever spoke like this man. The authority, the majesty, the strength, and the power of his words, the counsel and the wisdom and the guidance and the truth that Jesus spoke demonstrated that he is indeed the wonderful counselor. In every conflict with the religious leaders of Israel, he demonstrated perfect grasp of God's truth and perfect wisdom in knowing just what to say. You know how you and I sometimes get into arguments or conflicts with someone verbally speaking? I'm not talking about fisticuffs. We get into conflicts and we realize 10 minutes after the conversation, oh, I should have said that would have just shut them right up. That would have just answered it. Well, Jesus never had that problem. Jesus was never back on his heels in a discussion about God's truth or what to do or what's right or what's wrong. He was always in complete control, always completely grasping the situation, always speaking with perfect counsel and wisdom. He was indeed the wonderful counselor. So let me say this. If you're facing a problem today, 
that's beyond your ability and wisdom, let me urge you to call upon the wonderful counselor. Ask Jesus to bring his wisdom and his guidance into the situation. Jesus also showed himself to be the mighty God. He commanded the weather. He commanded the weather. Guys, we sometimes forget about how astounding that is. Can you imagine if a storm is whipping up outside and Todd walked outside and said, okay, that's enough, and then it just stopped. Wow. But Todd can't do that, nor can any, man, any other man on earth. Sorry, Todd. Jesus did that. He just spoke a word, peace be still, and the storm stopped. Jesus controlled the weather. We can barely even predict the weather. Jesus controlled the weather. And Jesus multiplied food. Now, how would you like to have that ability? He multiplied food with two loaves and five fish. Five loaves and two fish. I'll get it straight in a minute. Uh, <laughs> anyway, with that little bit of food, he fed thousands and thousands of people. He just caused it to multiply. And you know how he did that? He just said, Father, thank you for providing. And then it multiplied. He didn't have to drum up some incantation. He didn't have to draw a circle and pour some powder in the middle or grind up the eye of Newt or the leg of a lizard. He just spoke, and it happened. Jesus multiplied food. Jesus healed the sick, obviously, the dead, the lame, palsy, dropsy, you name it, he could heal them. And he raised the dead. Walking by a funeral procession one time, he sees a widow and her only son is dead, and he walks up and brings him back to life. Jesus showed himself to be God because he did only, excuse me, he did what only God could do. Jesus demonstrated himself to be the mighty God. On top of all of that, after he died, then he rose again. And when Thomas saw him after his resurrection, he said, my Lord and my God. Thomas recognized that truth after Christ's resurrection. Jesus is indeed the mighty God. Are you facing an enemy that's stronger than you today? A temptation, an addiction, a disease? Cry out to the mighty God. Cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to exercise his strength to heal you, to deliver you, to encourage you, to carry you through. How about this name, Everlasting Father? Now, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Because, again, knowing what we know about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, there is God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Spirit. And Jesus is God the Son. He is not God the Father. So why is he being called Everlasting Father here? Well, as I mentioned previously, they would use the term father to refer to kings in general because they would provide and protect their people. <clears throat> and Jesus does that for his people, for his church. He acts as a father to us. For one thing, he's the one who birthed the, birthed the church through his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And Jesus provides for and protects his people as a good father should. In John 10, 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Remember that the book of 1 Peter says that the devil goes around looking who he may devour. He comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy, Jesus said in John chapter 10. He wants to snatch you away from the grasp of Christ. He wants to take you out of the safe pastures of the Lord Jesus and bring you into destruction with himself. But Jesus says, no one 
will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus Christ is protecting you. If you have trusted in him, you are now one of his sheep. He is protecting you, and you cannot be lost. Though the devil and his demons may try to steal you, Christ will protect you, and he is mightier than they. The last name that's given in Isaiah 9, 6 is Prince of Peace. And Jesus proved himself to be the Prince of Peace by securing for us the greatest peace possible, and that is peace with God. Ephesians 2 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, talking about Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Romans 5.1 says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus made peace between us and God. We face a lot of hardships in this life. Some of the things I've already mentioned, addiction and disease, trials of uh, emotional difficulties, relational difficulties, economic difficulties. But our greatest problem as humans is our separation from the living God. Because all of us were created for fellowship with him. We were created to enjoy his loving fellowship. We were created to be in union with him. We were created to worship him. But because of sin, that connection is broken and we are separated from him. We are no longer at peace. The Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath. And John 3 says that the wrath of God remains on those who do not know Jesus. But once you trust Christ, you are now United to God. Because what separated you, your sin, has been taken away. You have now been forgiven. You are now given life. You are now adopted into the family of God forever. And now you live at peace with God. Regardless of what storms are going on around you, you can know of surety that you have peace with God if you have trusted in His Son. If you're feeling turmoil in your soul today... If you're troubled by a broken relationship or broken down by sin or terrified by the chaos in the world around you, ask the Lord Jesus to give you peace. Ask him to help you experience the peace that you know is yours because you are his child. God gave hope through the promise of the Messiah and Jesus fulfilled the hope of the Messiah. And finally, Jesus gave us a new hope. Now, I realize that the phrase, a new hope, conjures up the first Star Wars movie in your minds. So I got tossed out this gratuitous picture that has nothing to do with the sermon. Because that doesn't tie in a little bit. So now that that's out of the way, let's move back. So that's not the kind of new hope I'm talking about. Different new hope. Jesus gives us, Jesus gave us a new hope. And believe it or not, that was not intentional. Okay, When I came up with this phrase, it just seemed to fit. It was only later the Star Wars thing tied in. All right, so Jesus fulfilled the hope for the Messiah, but Jesus did not fulfill every hope. And I'll give you a quick example. The prime minister of Israel is Benjamin Netanyahu. I know some things about Mr. Netanyahu, Not everything, but one thing I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is he is not Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth is not physically ruling over Israel as was promised here in Isaiah chapter 6. 
Right now, Benjamin Netanyahu is ruling over Israel. So that hope that the Messiah will physically rule has not yet come to pass. And also, Israel is not currently experiencing unending and ever-increasing peace. They're not able to burn all of their implements of war and throw away their battle armor. But those hopes will be fulfilled because Jesus fulfilled part of the hope and then he gave us a new hope. In John 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled, talking to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not told, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that you may be, excuse me, that where, where I am, you may be also. Jesus promised to come back. Jesus promised that a day is going to come when those hopes that he didn't fulfill at his first advent will be fulfilled during his second advent. He will fulfill every hope that is promised. Titus 2.13 says that right now we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not physically reigning right now. He hasn't removed sin, death, and sorrow from the world yet. But he's coming back, and he will set everything right. He will remove sin, sorrow, and death from this world and from our experience. He will reign physically over Israel and the entire new earth. His kingdom, a per kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness, will indeed never end. The new hope that Jesus gave us is that he will come again and make everything new and dwell with us forever. So the message that I want to give to you today is this. Jesus fulfills our hope and gives us hope. He fulfills our hope for forgiveness, reconciliation with God, life, freedom, security, purpose, and much more. If you have trusted in Christ, those hopes have been fulfilled. It won't always feel like it, for instance, in the case of peace and security, but you can stand on the promise of God that in Christ, you are secure, you are at peace with the living God. If you don't know Jesus, you can have that hope fulfilled today. You can experience forgiveness. You can experience union with God, adoption into his family today. And when I close this message, there will be people up here at the front of the stage that would be overjoyed to talk to you about the hope of Christ and the gospel and to pray with you to trust in his name. Jesus fulfills our hope and gives us new hope, the new hope of his return to fulfill the hopes that still remain. And that new hope that he gave us has a solid foundation. It's more solid than East Texas weather. It's more solid than your grandmother's desire to give you gifts. It is based upon the very character and promise of the unchanging God. We can confidently expect that he will return. We can build our lives on the hope that he will set all things right. We can rest in Christ knowing that there really is a happy ending waiting for us that's more wonderful and glorious than any fairy tale. Jesus fulfills our hope and gives us hope. Since that's true, let's thank God for giving us his son. Without Christ, we have no hope. But united to the Son, we have fulfilled hope and the new hope that he is returning once again. 
Thank the Father for giving his son so that we could have life and hope. Now, maybe you know Jesus, and you're in an impossible situation right now. You can't imagine how it can be resolved. You can't even think of the words to pray to say, Lord, do this so that it will turn out right. You don't know. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to go forward. Ask the Lord to give you hope. The confident expectation that he is working on your behalf. And he will carry you through this dark time. Ask him to remind you of his promises, of his goodness, of his sovereignty. Ask him to remind you of the peace and the joy that is yours. Ask him to help you feel and experience the reality of his good presence and favor with you. Ask him to help you strengthen your hope in him and help you to feel that hope. Since Jesus and only Jesus fulfills our hope and gives us hope, look for a chance to give the hope of Christ to someone that you know that's in need. Maybe one of your co-workers doesn't know that how he's going to make it since his hours have been cut back. Maybe a cousin of yours is devastated by a recent divorce and can't imagine how she'll be able to raise three kids alone. Offer to pray for them, and in your prayer, point them toward the hope of Jesus Christ. It isn't trite. Don't let it be trite. Sincerely ask the Lord Jesus to give them grace and to act on their behalf. Ask the Lord to draw them close and to show them his hope. And by the way, I know that some of the uh, younger members of our congregation are here today. Glad to see each and every one of you. But let me encourage you young kids that know the Lord, you can do this too. You have friends that have difficulties and problems. You can offer to pray for that friend and ask them, uh, excuse me, and ask the Lord to help them. You can point them toward the hope that's in Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills our hope and gives us hope. As I close in prayer, I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward. And let me just remind you again, regardless of what your need might be, please come forward to stand and talk to one of our uh, prayer team members. They'll be happy to pray with you, to talk with you, to encourage you, and to intercede on your behalf. Let's all stand and go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Thank you, first of all, that I can call you Father. It is only because your Son has died for my sin and risen again and given me life and forgiveness. The Bible says that he gave us the right to become children of God. Our adoption was secured by what Jesus has done. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for giving your Son. And Lord Jesus, thank you for fulfilling our hope for a savior. And thank you that you have given us new hope that one day you will return. We will see you again face to face. You will take us to be with you forever. And one day, Lord, you will set everything right and reign forever in peace and righteousness. Lord, I ask if there's anyone in this room or anyone watching online who doesn't know you, that you would convince them of the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is the savior who can give them life and forgiveness. God, I pray that you would draw them to cry out to you and to receive your beautiful gift of salvation. Lord, I also pray for all those who have gathered that do know you, that their faith in you would be strengthened, that their hope would spring anew. Lord, I pray that you would give everyone in this room a special measure of grace as they go about their week. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being with us. In your holy name I pray, amen.